Hey y'all, Andrew here. I decided to release the first part of our latest episode on transporters as a separate monad. I think it might be useful for teaching or for other uses as a short, and so I decided to isolate it and release it on its own. So that's what you're about to hear. If you listen to the full episode, this is just repeat from that. to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Who are you? Someday in the distant future, we may well be faced with an important moral dilemma. Technology is sort of like a superpower in that it enhances what it's possible for us to do. Buying into a new technology is like buying into new superpowers or new additional abilities. Even if they're things I'm never going to actually use, just having all of these abilities at your fingertips is super cool. So new technologies often present us with new possibilities, new powers and abilities. The question then arises, how do we use these powers and abilities? The deeper question might also arise, should we use these new powers and abilities at all? In particular, when we introduce the possibility of transporting ourselves at the speed of information and reassembling ourselves at a distant location like we see in Star Trek and other science fiction, many will adopt this miracle technology without reflection. I, for one, will not be among them. I will not step into a transporter. Why, you ask? Well, let me tell you why. I should note that not much here is original. Some comes from a guy named Derek Parfit. Other comes from another guy named Patrick Grimm. Some comes from my conversation with Amy Kind that we'll get into later. Others have written extensively on related issues and related thought experiments. None of this is super revolutionary philosophy. I do take a little bit of credit here, though. Some of this is my own original thought. back up a bit. How do these things work, these, these transporters? How do they work? What sorts of assumptions can we make right off the bat? The way these transporters apparently work is by destroying your body in its current location. Presumably they do this so as to gain access to molecule by molecule structural information about the current state of your whole physical person. Then it beams this hyper-specific model of your current state to a device elsewhere that reconstructs your physical body, again, molecule by molecule. This seems to me to be the only way to make a Star Trek-like transporter work, given our current understanding of physics. There might be some different way, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you if you know of one, but for our discussion today, I will just assume that what happens is the destruction and reconstruction of your body down to the last molecule. So I'm on the planetary surface in my red shirt, loyally at the side of Captain Kirk, and our mission is complete. Kirk sounds triumphantly into his communicator. We're beaming up. Notify transporter room. 
then apparently what happens is my body is dissolved painlessly. The ship has a scanner tool that's powerful enough to scan my body's current physical state on the planetary surface while simultaneously breaking that physical structure down. In the show, it seems like maybe a tractor beam actually captures the constituent molecules and beams them to the ship. All the water and nitrogen and gold and oxygen and carbon and iron and folate that makes me up gets transported quickly through space. We can imagine a similar technology, though, that already has stores of these molecules in place on the ship or is able to synthesize molecules from pure energy. Maybe that's what's happening in the show. Then, apparently, something like a 3D printer rebuilds the microstructure of my body, molecule by molecule, and I am suddenly conscious. Sprung fully formed from the mind of Zeus. In the transporter bay on the USS Enterprise. Get Zooks! There doesn't seem to be anything incoherent or incompatible with what we know about brain science or biology to suppose that it might be in principle possible to create a full human body that is a microscopically accurate double of another and have it function properly and even remember things that happened to the body of which it is a copy. It might actually work like it does in Star Trek. You wake up in the USS Enterprise in the middle of a thought you were having right before you got beamed up by Scotty. Let's allow that this is compatible with the way our brains and the rest of our biology works. Yeah? Okay, so you're faced with a problem. You want to visit Alpha Centauri and come back to Earth afterwards. It'd be super duper cool, but the problem is that you'll have to step into one of these newfangled transporter booths. You're a little skittish about the new technology, and I think you have a right to be. When you step into the transporter booth, your body will be dissolved molecule by molecule and its current state will be scanned. Then that digital scan will be beamed across the galaxy to the Alpha Centauri arrival station where a booth will receive that scan and reconstruct you in the state you were in in the moment you were scanned. A fairly painless process, but maybe a slight electrical jolt just at the beginning. The machines that do the scanning and reconstructing are very accurate, so there's no time needed to get used to your reconstructed body or to allow things to settle back into place. It's all exactly as it was back on Earth. Then later, your visit across the galaxy is over and you decide to beam home. Again, you are deconstructed and meticulously scanned at Alpha Centauri, beamed home, and then reconstructed a second time back on Earth. Sounds like fun, right? There's a lot to see, and traveling at the speed of light would allow you to see much more of it. Wrong, I say. Wrong. Do not do it. I say don't do it, because it seems rather obvious to me, actually, that you will die each time you use the transporter. Or since you'll die the first time, the new you copy will die when they use the transporter to get home. The person who arrives home and is greeted by your friends and family will not be you. It will just be a very good copy of you. Actually, it will be a copy of a copy of you since you've been dissolved twice. And I haven't even started talking about the timey-wimey stuff that happens when you or information about you travels at the speed of light. That gets really weird. Watch Christopher Nolan's Interstellar for some decent representation of time dilation due to the effects of gravity. Some of the same effects will happen when you travel close to the speed of light. Anyways, let's set aside time dilation and all the Einstein-y weird stuff having to do with space-time, and we'll just focus on the philosophical issue. Is it you who arrives back on Earth after a round-trip safari to Alpha Centauri? Alpha Centauri is a star, by the way, so when I say trip to Alpha Centauri, you're smart enough to figure out that I actually mean reference to a planet orbiting Alpha Centauri, right? 
You're not one of those pedantic Neil deGrasse Tyson types who thinks people talking loosely always means they don't understand something, right? There are two lines of attack that I'll take. I'm going to call them the metaphysical line of argument and the moral line of argument. One appeals to the metaphysical status of the object that comes out of the transporter and the object that steps into the transporter. And the other argument appeals to the moral status of that same being or set of beings. First, the metaphysical argument. When we ask ourselves what it means to be, quote unquote, the same object over time, we never seem to imagine cases where the object stops existing and then sometime later comes into existence again, only to be called the same object. If my apple gets eaten, then through the wonders of nanotechnology reconstructed out of the physical waste it turned into in a digestive tract, we won't likely want to eat it, but we certainly won't call it the very same apple, right? It's a new apple that's been constructed out of bits and pieces of the old one. There are a lot of fun thought experiments to discuss here, but I don't want to go too far away from my core purpose to argue that one should not make use of matter transporters when they are invented. Here's one more thought experiment, though. It's called The Ship of Theseus. It was mentioned pretty recently on the Marvel show WandaVision. Theseus was a famous adventurer and explorer in ancient Greece. Aristotle presents us with this interesting case to think about. Theseus's ship would inevitably become damaged through the course of his travels. Whenever he returned home, therefore, he would have to pay the shipwrights to replace boards, masts, sails, and so on. Over time, he managed to damage every single piece of his ship, such that at one point he had replaced each and every piece of the ship from bow to stern. But Theseus is a famous man, you see. So when they replaced his mast, they didn't just throw away the broken log. When they replaced a plank, they didn't just throw away the worn board. Instead, a savvy shipwright set these pieces aside in a special pile. Eventually, throughout all of Theseus's travels, the entire ship was replaced. Not one piece of the ship remains the same. And the shipwright responsible for replacing all of these pieces has become quite rich. Thank you to Kelly Marie Lavin for narrating this episode. The first question we must ask ourselves is simply, is Theseus still sailing the same ship? If every piece has been replaced, should we stop thinking of it as the same ship? Maybe at some point it became a brand new ship, the ship of Theseus 2.0. The story continues, though. This now wealthy shipwright has a plan to honor his famous and loyal client, Theseus. The shipwright commissions his workers to reconstruct a new plank-for-plank replica of Theseus's ship. But the kicker is that the shipwright decides to use the pieces they have taken from the old ship of Theseus. So now we have two ships of Theseus. One that Theseus has been sailing continuously, but which has no constituent part that it originally had and another that Theseus has in some sense never set foot upon, but which is structurally identical to and has all of the original parts as Theseus's ship, plus a patch or brace here and there. The second question we'll have to ask ourselves is, which is the real ship of Theseus? Is there any sense to this question? There are a lot of philosophical questions to draw out of this thought experiment. For now, though, I want to drill down on one particular aspect of this story, The ship is completely disassembled and then reassembled in an essentially structurally identical manner. Is that the same ship? I think not. Once an object has been disassembled, let alone entirely dissolved, it has lost its status as one continuous and identical object. When it's reconstructed, it is now 
two very similar but not identical objects, one object before and another object after. Let's try a different thought experiment, one that might be closer to the topic I'm discussing here, which is transporters. Theseus and his new and shiny ship comes to the Isthmus of Panama. Convinced as he is, though, that the fountain of youth lies somewhere beyond this narrow strip of land, he decides to do something bold, something never before done. He conscripts his crew to tear down the ship piece by piece, keeping careful track of how the ship went together. The crew folk are very good and careful not to damage any pieces. They then trek across Panama with planks of the ship on their backs until they reach the Great Sea Beyond, now called the Pacific Ocean. The ship is then reconstructed carefully so as to be structurally identical to the ship that was deconstructed on the Caribbean shore. They then set sail along the coast in search of clues as to the whereabouts of the Fountain of Youth. Is the ship in the Pacific the same ship as the one that arrived on Panama's Caribbean shores? Is it just a very similar ship, but not the very same ship? What do you at home think? Think about it for a second. I'm honestly unsure of what to say, and that lack of clarity should make us deeply uncomfortable. If it's a ship, it doesn't matter so much. We don't really care whether it's the very same ship. Similarly, if I'm transporting my computer through a transportation device, so long as all the bits on the hard drive are flipped properly, and all of the gates and the processors are arranged properly, I'm happy. But it's very different if I myself am going to be dissolved and reconstituted. I want a bit more than structural similarity. I want it to be me, capital M, me, not some really similar doppelganger. It seems that most cases where something dissolves and then is reconstituted are cases where the original thing has gone away. There might be exceptions to this, but I think being continuously integrated being put together continuously over time seems to be pretty darn important to remaining the very same object rather than a very similar copy. Thank you to Kelly Marie Lavin and Amy Kind for their help with this episode. Thank you so, so much to our patrons. Currently, that includes Peter Sugia and Barbara Sweer, Kui Gray Lavin, Rafa Smith, Oistin Johansson, Ben and Annalisa Colahan. Robert Jones, Owen Roth, Luke and Courtney Adams, and Connor Hughes. If you would like to join these heroes of podcast funding, even for just like 50 cents or a dollar a month, head over to patreon.com slash reductio. There's a link in the show notes. Please also rate and review us on iTunes, especially reviewing helps a lot. There's also a link in the show notes for that. That is a huge, huge help. Until next time, this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media.